We're going to take up Matthew's account of Christ's crucifixion in Matthew 27, beginning in verse 32. Also, when we finish with that text, I'm going to go immediately to Hebrews 12, verses 1 to 3. So if you want to uh, turn there and put a finger in uh, that text while we're looking at Matthew 27, feel free to do so, because Hebrews 12 will uh, give us entry into our consideration of the Lord's death this morning. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, Come down from the cross. So also the chief priests, with the scribes and elders, mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him, for he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders, hearing it, said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook, and the rocks were split, and the tombs also were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place... They were filled with awe and said, truly this was the Son of God. In Hebrews 12, then, we are uh, given 
this exhortation. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against him, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Hebrews 12, 3. Consider him. The word consider is the Greek word analogizomai. It's a root word with a prefix. The word logizomai in the Greek means to calculate, to evaluate, to ponder, uh, to mull over, uh, to, to ruminate, to think deeply. And then the little prefix ana is put in front of it. Ana logizomai. And ana is a prefix of emphasis, which means again or intensely. And so ana logizomai means think about this, not casually or periodically or just once, but mull it, ponder it, uh, meditate upon it, uh, if you will. Uh, reflect upon this uh, frequently and deeply. And this word, analogizomai, appears in the New Testament only one time. And it's here in Hebrews 12.3. And it tells us to think deeply, seriously, and frequently upon Jesus and in particular, his dying on the cross. It got me to thinking, what are those things that we often uh, ponder or mull over or think about frequently? Uh, we, we may think about my job, you know, or, or I think about my health often, <laughs> or uh, I, I deeply consider and revisit my money uh, not in a bad way, just in a financial way. Uh, you know, what's it doing and, and how are things? My home, my family, my wife, my children, my friends, or uh, perhaps the pain that I have suffered or the difficulty or struggle that I'm experiencing now. These are things that we often consider on a logizomai, repeatedly and deeply. But as the pastor mentioned, for the last couple of weeks and for a couple of more weeks at least, we're going to consider Jesus. We're going to take time uh, to really deeply consider Jesus and his death on the cross. And today, we're going to consider Jesus under four headings. Uh, propitiation, substitution, Love and joy, propitiation, substitution, 
love and joy. First of all, propitiation. This word appears in the New Testament four times. What are they, Pastor Dave? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. Uh, Romans 3, 23 to 25. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Hebrews 2.17, speaking of Jesus as our high priest, the writer says, a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. And then twice in 1 John. 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And 1 John 4, 10 in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. What in the world does propitiation mean? I have shared this before, lest you hear it, remember it, and think I've skipped a groove and I don't remember the illustrations I've used before. I've used this one before. But I'm using it again today because I can't think of a better one. I just recently uh, viewed a documentary on Netflix. It was called First to the Moon. First to the Moon. That is not Neil Armstrong. Neil Armstrong was the first on the moon. But he was not the first to the moon. Seven months prior to Neil Armstrong stepping out onto the moon's surface, Frank Borman, James Lovell, and William Anders launched out from Earth and Earth's atmosphere and Earth's orbit <laughs> straight to the moon and encircled uh, the moon uh, a, few, a few times. I was a space program kid uh, growing up. I adored uh, the space program, all the way around. Mercury, Gemini, Apollo, uh, the, the space uh, shuttle. I just thought it was cool, just, uh, just watching the rockets and, and everything uh, that, that was involved. Uh, but one of the most vivid memories of anybody who tracked the space program uh, was the most tense moment in, uh, in every project, in, in every mission. There was one moment of tension that far exceeded all the others, even more tense than the launch. And it was not the launch or escaping Earth's atmosphere. It was when the capsule had to return through Earth's atmosphere and then eventually splash down, or in the case of the space shuttle, uh, land. And that's because as these capsules would re-enter the Earth's atmosphere, it would create a tremendous friction that caused the temperature on the outside of the space capsule to exceed 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit. And so one of the biggest challenges that the, uh, the NASA technici technicians and scientists faced was 
how do we get the capsule back through the atmosphere without it destroying the capsule and disintegrating the astronauts? And of course, what they did was they created uh, a shield on one side of the capsule that was capable of withstanding the intense heat. And of course, this was referred to as the heat shield. Makes sense. And so as the capsule would re-enter, the heat shield would absorb the full wrath of that friction while the astronauts behind the shield were comfortable and safe. Also, during that time of re-entry, they experienced LOS, which stood for loss of signal. And for four minutes, the atmosphere disrupted the ability of the astronauts being able to communicate with uh, mission control and mission control incapable of communicating with the astronauts. And so for four minutes, the world would hold its collective breath, hoping and praying that the heat shield would hold and the guys or gals would be safe through the atmosphere. As it turns out, in the NASA technician's handbook, it's not called the heat shield. That's a layman's term. Do you know what the technical, mechanical name for that thing is? The propitiatory shield. That's what it is known as. It takes the brunt of the wrath of the heat of the friction, and those behind the shield are protected. That's what propitiation means in reference to our Savior Jesus. He is our propitiatory shield. He bears in his body on the cross the full brunt of the infinite, unmitigated wrath of God poured out upon him for sin, while all who take refuge in Jesus behind him, figuratively speaking, are safe and protected from the wrath of God. We could say the propitiatory shield is literally a wrath absorber. And this is what Jesus did when he died on the cross. He became our wrath absorber. And so at 12 noon, when the Mediterranean sun should be at its apex, the whole land goes pitch black. My speculative guess is so black you could not see your hand in front of your face. And as Jesus hangs on the cross dying, after all he's already suffered, for three hours from noon to 3 p.m., there is silence. Nothing is heard. Nothing is said. And then out of the inky blackness, perhaps as the first glimmer of light is starting to return, is this blood-curdling cry from Christ. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the cry of the propitiatory shield. It is not a cry that is caused by the anguish of physical torture. But at its heart, this is the cry of spiritual desertion. 
One commentator put it this way. It was not the crown of thorns or the scourge or the cross which made him cry, but the darkness, the awful darkness of desertion which oppressed his mind and made him feel like one distraught. All that could possibly comfort him had been withdrawn. And all that could distress him was piled upon him. This is Jesus in 2 Corinthians. Paul says, God made him to be sin who knew no sin. Not that he became a sinner or sinful, but he becomes the sin bearer. The sins of his people transferred to him on the cross. And in that moment, God is the God of Habakkuk 1.13. You are of purer eyes than to see evil. And you cannot look at wrong. And so as Jesus becomes the sin bearer, God, as it were, even his, Jesus' father turns his face away and withdraws all of his support as God is executing his office as judge and rightly judging with judgment on Jesus for the sins of his people. Townsend and Getty got it right in Christ alone which they penned in 2001, they got it right when they wrote, till on that cross, when Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. And there is a Presbyterian denomination, the Presbyterian Church USA, that wrote Townsend and Getty in 2013, asking if they could use their hymn but change the words because they didn't want their hymnal to talk about the wrath of God. They didn't want their God to in any way be involved in the death of Christ. And praise God for Getty and Townsend who said, no, you can't do that. <laughs> you can't take those words out. It's the heart of the good news for sinners that we are by nature under God's wrath and that Jesus has absorbed that wrath in his body on the cross. And so in response, the PCUSA decided not to include the hymn. If we can't change the words, we're not going to include the hymn. Their loss. Their loss. And again, I say good for Townsend and Getty. Because the Bible is clear that what's taking place on the cross is the wrath of God justly executed against sin in his son who volunteers to be the propitiatory shield for guilty sinners. Paul in 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says this, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Propitiation. Then substitution. For whose sins is Jesus dying? <laughs> Not his own, because he didn't, he didn't have any. No, Christ is suffering the penalty for sin in the place of, as a substitute for, 
guilty sinners. And the words of substitution when it comes to our salvation in Jesus are everywhere in the scripture. 1 Peter 1.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. 1 Peter 3.18, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Isaiah 53, prophetically speaking of the Savior. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We are healed by the healer being wounded. He was forsaken so that we will never be forsaken. He was cursed so that we will never be cursed. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation, not now and not ever. Or to put it another way, as we think of justification, the forgiveness of our sins, and Christ absorbing the wrath of God for our sins, we are as justified today as we ever will be. We will be more sanctified over time. We will be glorified in eternity. But we will never be more justified because our justification doesn't depend on us. It depends on the finished work of Christ and his death on the cross. And that is perfect, unchangeable, unimprovable, and finished. Not now, not ever, because Christ has volunteered to substitute himself for us. Propitiation, substitution, and then love. Okay, so what motivated Jesus to do this? What in the world caused him to go to the cross and put himself in the way of God's wrath for us? Ephesians 5.25 Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Christ's love for guilty sinners is what motivated him. What moved him to this self-sacrificing action? He loved us when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, when we were by nature objects of wrath. In that condition, Jesus loved us and volunteered to stand in our place to save us. And I would like to mention while we're here not just the love of Jesus, but the love of God the Father. John 3, 16. 
God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Who is the he? Who is the he gave his only begotten son? That's got to be the father. (laughs) The father so loved the world that the father gave his son. Gave him what? Gave him to be a great example, a great moral teacher. He was, but that's not primarily what the father gave in his son. The father so loved the world that he gave his son as a propitiation, as a substitution, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And we were talking about propitiation in 1 John 4, but in that verse, it says, in this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. The motivation for saving sinners was the God who is love and in his love rescued, delivered, forgave, (laughs) protected guilty sinners in Jesus. And then what about joy? What about joy? This is what it says in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 primarily speaks of Christ prophetically in his sacrificial substitutionary sacrifice. That's what it talks about for the most part. But at the end of Isaiah chapter 53, in verse 11, it says, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Speaking of the Messiah, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, the father speaking, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. This brings us all the way back to Hebrews 12. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. What was the joy? What was the joy set before Jesus that allowed him to endure the cross? I would suggest it was the joy of seeing redemption for his people. It was the joy of knowing that what he was going to go through would be successful. And he would see the outcome of his travail in millions, maybe billions of men and women and children coming to saving faith in him over the ages. How, does it, how, does it, how is it in the book of Revelation? That great host, what, which is really big? No, that great host which no man can number. Heaven's not going to be crowded, but it is going to be full. <laughs> okay? This is what Jesus sees for the, jo- for the joy of being the savior of sinners. He is willing to endure the cross. In Isaiah, it says, by his wounds, we are healed by considering what, we, what he went through. That's the healing balm for us. Verse 3 in Hebrews 12 says, it says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility so that you may not grow weary and faint-hearted. 
You see, the writer makes a statement and then an application. Consider him, practical application, so that you will not grow weary and faint-hearted. When I'm experiencing pain because of my job, I'm to consider Jesus. When I'm experiencing pain because of my home or my family or my children, I'm to consider Jesus. When I'm experiencing pain because of my money or lack thereof, I'm to consider Jesus. When I'm experiencing pain because of the current struggles or past hurts, I'm to consider Jesus. This is the path of healing by considering the wounded healer who bled and died to secure our eternal salvation. We don't minimize the pain. It's real and it's distressful. And we don't minimize the wounds. I mean, the wounds that we suffer. We don't minimize those. But how do they get healed? How do we get restored? We get restored by considering Christ and what he went through to be redemptive so that we will not become weary or, or lose heart. One of the greatest painters who ever lived was, was Rembrandt. <laughs> and uh, one of his most famous paintings is called The Raising of the Cross. And in this painting by Rembrandt is a depiction of Jesus nailed to the cross, clearly visible. It's virtually a close-up. It's, it's as if the perspective of the painter is six feet away. You, you know, you, you, can, you can see the cross and, and, and the spikes through his hands and his feet. And, and the cross is being raised up by some soldiers and some others. And in the dark background, and Christ is the focal point, without a doubt. The light is shining upon him as the substitutionary sacrifice for sinners. In the dark background, the religious leaders, uh, some other soldiers, maybe some people who are passing by. But at the foot of the cross... With both hands on the cross, assisting to lift it up, to be planted, is a man who looks like he doesn't fit because he's not wearing first century garb. He's wearing a, a, a blue beret and he's sitting on a stool. And the man is Rembrandt. Rembrandt puts himself at the foot of the cross as one who is assisting because Rembrandt gets it. He understands. It wasn't their sins that put Jesus on the cross. It was my sins. I'm the one who put Christ on the cross. He's dying for my sins. He's suffering because I'm guilty. He's going through what I deserve. Rembrandt got it. 
I hope we get it. I hope we get it. Every one of us should be at the foot of that cross with the full understanding that my sins contributed to his death, which he went to voluntarily. That's part of the joy. He was not coerced or forced against his will. For the joy set before him, Jesus went to the cross. But nevertheless, my sins are what nailed him there and resulted in all of the horror and torment and wrath of God that he went through and endured to set me free. Let's pray. We were there when they crucified you, Lord. We were there in our sins, even before we were born. They were nailed to the cross, that we might bear them no more. So no matter who we are, or what we've done, or what's happening, Jesus, we, through faith in you, can say, It is well, it is well with our souls.